It happens nearly every day. It could be a politician or a business person or a school friend or a family member or maybe you or me. And this is what happens. Someone is called out for racism. And they respond, no, not me. I don't have a racist bone in my body. Sometimes it sounds like race has nothing to do with it, or I treat everyone the same, or I don't care if you're pink, purple, or polka dotted, or race has no meaning to me, I don't see color, or people making everything about race are the real racists. Other times it sounds like someone saying, well, my black coworker says the same thing, or I have an Asian friend, or I grew up in New York, or I was in the Peace Corps, so I know what it's like to be a minority, or those who know me know that I'm not in any way racist. I'm exhausted just reading those statements. Because all of those statements are defensive moves. They try to protect the speaker by insisting on how not racist the speaker is. And the logic behind such statements is, first, racists are bad. Two, I'm not bad. Three, therefore, I'm not racist. And I'm going to do whatever it takes to convince you that there is absolutely no way that I'm racist, so don't even suggest it. Robin D'Angelo calls this defensive response white fragility. She defines it as, quote, a state in which even a minimum amount of racial stress becomes intolerable, triggering a range of defensive moves. White people's moral objection to racism increases their resistance to acknowledging their complicity with it. In a white supremacist context, white identity largely rests on a foundation of superficial racial tolerance and acceptance. We whites who position ourselves as liberal often opt to protect what we perceive as our moral reputations rather than recognize or change our participation in systems of inequity and domination, end quote. In other words, white fragility is what happens when white people who are deeply invested in being seen as not racist have that self-image challenged. They defend themselves rather than changing. And ouch, I say they, but really I should say it me. It is painful to be challenged in our own sense of goodness. And therefore, although I'm talking about white fragility right now, if you're not white, you can substitute any area of privilege for whiteness. Unthinking maleness, heterosexuality, cisgenderism, ableism, etc. It's defensive fragility that can manifest any time that privileged people are confronted with their sin and choose to reinforce oppressive power structures rather than dismantling them. But if you are white, I urge you to stay with the discomfort of talking specifically about whiteness. Don't shift the focus. White supremacy is America's original sin, the sin that this country is built on. We're all infected, 
So lean into the discomfort. When we feel uncomfortable and then try to get rid of those feelings as fast as possible by denying, defending, and suppressing them, then we are cutting ourselves off from an opportunity to grow. We are missing out on a potential gift from God. Can we begin to identify our discomfort as a grace? Our discomfort is a prevenient grace, the grace that goes before us, the grace that awakens us to the fact that things aren't the way they should be. Our discomfort is the grace that is calling us to change. So leaning into the discomfort becomes part of our recovery. Acknowledging our feelings and behavior becomes the first step toward healing. Earlier this fall, we hosted a six-week book study on white fragility by Robin D'Angelo, the book I quoted from earlier. And that class was about half UUMC members and half people from the community. And every single person who showed up wanted to learn about and address white fragility. We wanted to stop using those excuses and defenses that I listed at the beginning of the sermon. But even in that group, that group of people who set aside six weeks of their life to talk about white fragility and read this book, we still had to stop and review the expectations for white participants. That we are not here to argue about whether we are racist. We are racist, and we're here to work on our own racism. And this reminder was necessary because no one ever wants to admit being racist. We're stuck in a good-bad binary where we believe that everyone is either good or bad, racist or not racist, and it's our job to convince others that we're in the good category. But the question, the freeing question, is not if we're racist, but how. For people of color, this can manifest as internalized oppression and colorism. For white people, it manifests in everything from calling certain neighborhoods sketchy to expecting some students to be model minorities to being surprised when others are so articulate. And if you don't know why I used quotes and why these are problematic, let's talk more after the service. But once we learn more about these everyday patterns of racism, we will see them everywhere. So here's where the gospel comes in. There is freedom in recognizing our own racism. There is freedom in knowing that we are sinners. There is freedom in confessing when we're wrong. There is freedom in admitting that we're powerless and only a power greater than ourselves can restore us. Robin D'Angelo says it like this, The ubiquitous socializing power of white supremacy cannot be avoided. Entering the conversation with this understanding is freeing because it allows us to focus on how, rather than if, our racism is manifest. When we move beyond the good-bad binary, we can become eager to identify our racist patterns because interrupting those patterns becomes more important than managing how we look to others. Rather than trying to be on the good side of a false binary, 
I have found it much more useful to think of myself as on a continuum. Racism is so deeply woven into the fabric of our society that I do not see myself escaping from that continuum in my lifetime. But I can continually seek to move further along it. I am not in a fixed position on the continuum. My position is dictated by what I am actually doing at a given time. Conceptualizing myself on an active continuum changes the question from whether I am or am not racist to a much more constructive question. Am I actively seeking to interrupt racism in this context? End quote. And that's a sociologist saying that we can get out of the good-bad binary. But as Christians, our faith teaches us the same. We can claim what is true of us in Christ, that we are sinners saved by grace. The jig is up, the truth is out. We have fallen short of the glory of God. There's no point in hiding. There's no point in being ashamed. It is only by God's grace that we will ever be free. If we want to experience God's freedom, we must embrace our flaws, our mistakes, our sin. And what does this mean? Does this mean that we just shrug our shoulders and say, oh, well, I'm a sinner, so I'm just going to sin it on up? Or, oh, well, everyone's racist, and um, I'm going to avoid carrying tiki tor- torches and just wash my hands of further responsibility because I'm still secretly one of the good ones. No. For freedom, we have been set free. As Paul says, you were called to freedom. Only don't let this freedom be an opportunity to indulge your selfish impulses, but serve each other through love. The freedom is that we no longer have to pretend. We no longer need to spend our energy in denial. Instead, we can use our energy to admit our mistakes, to call out for help, and to make amends. In our freedom, we no longer care if people see us as good. Instead, we care about becoming better today than we were yesterday and better tomorrow than we are today. Sin no longer dictates the direction that we will go. Grace gives us the power of the Holy Spirit to change course over and over again. Sin no longer has power over us. John Wesley writes about believers who are no longer under sin's power, and he says, They are daily sensible of sin remaining in their heart, pride, self-will, unbelief, and of sin cleaving to all they speak and do, even their best actions and holiest duties. Yet at the same time, they know that they are of God. They cannot doubt it for a moment. This means that they are free from the power of sin. Now they are able to repent, to change without worrying about punishment. And so Wesley continues, This repentance implies no guilt, no sense of condemnation, no consciousness of the wrath of God. It does not suppose any doubt of the favor of God or any fear that hath torment. It is properly a conviction wrought by the Holy Ghost of the sin which still remains in our heart. Although the sin does no longer reign, it has not now dominion over them. 
I love that Wesleyan phrase, when sin remains but does not reign. When racism remains but does not reign. When white supremacy remains but does not reign. When sexism remains but does not reign. When corruption and deceit and conflict and jealousy and selfishness and vindictiveness remain, but they do not reign. When sin no longer reigns, we will still inevitably do something wrong. But that sin won't have power over us. We won't be defined by it or paralyzed into inaction or defensiveness. We won't resort to self-justification or white fragility or I don't have a racist sinful bone in my body. Instead, we will admit our wrongs and embrace our growth. This is the grace of God. For freedom, we have been set free. Amen.